We're continuing in our sermon series and in uh, the letters that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18 this morning. From the beginning of our series in Thessalonians, we've communicated that the entire theme of these letters is teaching Christians, teaching us, the church, how to live until He comes. Until He comes. And in in our passage today, Paul is speaking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, the basis of this, uh, I think it is clear that the, the church had some questions. They had questions about the resurrection, and they had questions about their... Uh, church family members, their, their loved ones who had gone on before them. Uh, it's clear that Paul had taught them about the gospel and had taught them about the resurrection and they taught them about Jesus' coming again before he had to leave. Um, and in teaching him them about these things, I just want to let you know that this what he was teaching them about the gospel, about the resurrection, about the a second coming of Christ is one of the principal aspects of Christianity. So what we're dealing with here is a principal aspect of Christianity. And as we dive into this passage, I just want to make uh, one thing clear that uh, as we journey today, that we do not get caught up in what we tend to get caught up in when we talk about the return of Jesus, and that is times and seasons and, and, and even interpretations. Uh, I think about um, this pastor is uh, a good friend of mine. He's in his 90s now. He's still kicking around, and he, he's, he loves the Lord. And, and uh, he says, Joey, we're talking about eschatology, the, the end times. And he says, Joey, he says, I've been around a long time. And he says, I've landed in the pre-tribulation camp. I've landed in the post-tribulation camp. I've been a pre-millennius, an amillennius, and a post-millennius. And he says, I've been everything uh, through my life. And he says, I just come to this truth. If Jesus said it, then that settles it. And uh, he was just, he says, there's, there's truth in the word that, that really all of those things, you, you know, uh, could, could support it. And some great theologians have debated all of those things throughout the years. And, and so this morning, if we look at times and we think about seasons, we're missing the point of this passage. There are some clear truths that Jesus shared uh, that, that is shared about Jesus and His return in this passage, and we don't want to think about all of those things and miss the point of the passage. And so, I just wanted to preface our time together that there are some absolute certainties in this passage, and we're going to bring those out. And there's other things that are going to be taught along the way, even next week, about Christ's second coming, and in Second Thessalonians, uh, and all throughout Scripture about Christ's return as it relates to the church. And uh, those things are worth studying. They're worth studying about. But we don't want to miss the point of our passage today. Today, Paul is going to reinforce the truth that eschatology matters. And just like in our previous weeks, we are going to see the parallel between good theology and godly living. Good theology and, and, and godly practical living. He is going to teach us this morning who God is and how our faith, 
Our hope and our love for Him leads us to live a life that glorifies Him. Today, specifically, this is a message for every one of us. Because today, we're going to be taught how to grieve with hope and how to comfort one another as we grieve. Why is this for everyone? Well, because every one of us have experienced the pain of death. Every one of us have grieved. Some of us are grieving even today. I think about this year. Many of you have lost loved ones, mothers and fathers and children. There has been great loss in this body this year. And you know what? Leading into next year, some of us will grieve the loss of our loved ones. We don't know what holds for tomorrow, but we know who holds tomorrow in His hands. And so we trust in that, and that's the reason why it's very important for us to understand. Church family, what the world is longing for, what the world desperately needs to hear, what the world is totally missing. Church, we have it. We have it in the gospel. We have the promise of another life. We have the promise that when we look around and we see pain and we see distress and we see difficulty, we see disease and we see even death, we have assurance to know that these things are not ultimate. What is ultimate is what lasts. And that is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Church, we have a good gospel. We have a good gospel, and I pray that the promise of His coming this morning will so be embedded in your hearts this Christmas season that hope abounds, that joy is abundant, and your worship is full. That is my prayer for this church this morning as we preach this message. Let us read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul had the opportunity to teach the Thessalonians about the gospel, about the resurrection, about the coming of Jesus. And they had questions. And practically, they wanted to know what happens to believers who die before Jesus comes again? Is there hope for them? This is their concern. And I just, before we get into the, the message, there, there's, there's a huge theme 
that you're not going to hear in this passage, but it kind of transcends and makes its way from our previous passage into this passage. Even though Paul is introducing a completely new topic and really the thrust of his letter, um, and it is this it is this theme of love. This theme of love. What we see here, there is a deep abiding affection that this church has for one another. Even so, that they are so grieved with the thought that the believers who had been persecuted, that they had saw die, that they were going to experience something that they were not. That they, who were alive, were going to experience the resurrection, and those that were already dead might not experience that. They were so grieved by that. They missed them. They loved them. But they did not want them to miss out on what was glorious and what was true. Just a, one of those things. And also we see not only the love that they have one another as a thing, we also see the love of God. We see the love of God. Uh, and it is, it is so evident, and we'll talk more about that as we, we go forward. But Paul, what he does is he sets out to encourage and comfort the church by informing them what I believe to be three aspects of gospel hope. Three aspects of gospel hope. Number one, starting in verse 13, what we see is the significance of our hope. The significance of our hope. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In the first part of verse 13, we see Paul use a phrase that he has used over and over again in his writings to the church. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be unaware. What Paul is saying here is there, there, are, there are important things. There are certain things that have great significance in our life. And he does not want us to be ignorant about the truth of this passage because he knows something. What he knows is that truth about God is what God uses to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to grow us. Now, Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, uh, he said something that supports the significance of our, our hope and the truth and how truth informs us and helps us. Whatever was written beforehand was written for your instruction in order that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. Paul knows something very significant. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. What I'm about to share with you is very, very important. Paul wants to answer this church's question about death and resurrection. And he wants them to know that what he is about to share is very important. And we'll see that it is a declaration of God. Truth. Truth is what God uses to comfort us and to strengthen us. So in our believing, hope may abound. Romans 15, 13. And Paul is going to make this very point in this passage of Scripture today. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul shares why he doesn't want them to be uninformed in the latter part of that, verse 13. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like others. I don't want you to grieve like the outsiders. I want you to grieve with hope. And I think there's one observation that we need to make here is that Paul is not saying that Christians should never grieve. He is not saying that if you believe the gospel, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection, that you shouldn't grieve. But what he does say is that we are to grieve with hope. We're not to grieve like others who have no hope. So as I was studying this and thinking about this, I asked the question, why does Paul draw such importance to hope and grief? And I think that if we look at the context again, it will help us. This church family was grieving the loss of their loved ones. They were hurting, and Paul wanted to meet them in their hurt with truth about God. So as Paul gets ready to unfold some of the most extensive teaching on the second coming in the entire New Testament, not only this week, but leading into next week, what is his first concern? His first concern is a very significant one. His first concern is to shepherd the church. To shepherd the church. Paul's response to their question is not just doctrinal. It's pastoral. He loved them, he cared for them, and he wanted to comfort them. And what did he comfort them with? He comforted them what is significant for you and I. He comforted them with the truth of who God is. This is very important for us. If we ever are going to learn what it means to grieve with hope, we need to understand that it is God's Word that holds fast. It is God's Word that is foundational for us. It is God's Word. It is God's Word that will keep you, that will sustain you forever. It will be your refuge and your help in time of need. A.W. Tozer said, What we think about God is of most importance about us. And even in our grief, if we are to abound in hope, what we think about God will either help us hope and grieve well, or we will be like everyone else. And we will grieve with no hope. It's very important. So Paul wants us to see the significance of our hope. As we continue on in our our passage this morning, not only uh, is there the significance of our hope, then Paul draws attention to the center of our hope. In In verse 14, Paul points us to the center of our hope. Notice how he begins there. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. What is Paul saying here? Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is the basis for everything that is following. It's the basis for everything that's about to follow. And how do we know this? This this connective word that we see in verse 14, this word for... This, this, this word of connect, connection tells us that Paul is drawing a conclusion here. He says, for, for since we believe this, this will happen. For since, this connected word, that through Christ's death and resurrection, believers will be resurrected. Do you see that connection? It's very important. This is the center of our hope. All right, so let's walk through this again. All right, verse 14. For since we believe 
Jesus died. This simple statement summarizes the richness of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Jesus died. What does that mean? It means that in Jesus' death, it satisfied the demands of God's righteousness, His holiness and justice by paying in full the penalty of our sins. So when we read that Jesus died, what we're seeing is that in Christ's death, we as believers have been transformed into life. And that is why Paul uses a metaphor for death here, and it's called the word asleep. He uses this word asleep because of Christ's death and what it meant. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus conquered sin, that Jesus conquered death, and became the source of resurrection life for everyone who will believe. The reason why we have hope in the face of death is found in the fundamental confession of the church. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. This is fundamental. This is the center of our hope. Without the gospel, without the death of Jesus, without the resurrection of Jesus, we would have no hope. For since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. The phrase, even so, is very important for us, church, because this phrase links our resurrection inseparably to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, you will too. All right, this is very important. Paul, uh, look, listen to what John had to say and uh, recorded Jesus' words here. He said in John 14, 19, Because I live, you will live also. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through His power. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. The center of Paul's teaching on resurrection is this, that our resurrection and Christ's resurrection are not two separate events. They are two episodes of the same event. Even so, just as Christ was raised, even so, you will be raised. That is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ's resurrection is the what? First fruits. He is saying, church, I want to comfort you with this truth. Do you want an indication of what the resurrection is going to be like? If you want an indication of what the resurrection harvest is going to be like, look at the one who started it. Look to Jesus. Paul is saying that Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago is our resurrection. It may be separated by time and space for us, but God is not bound by time. But we are simply waiting for the fulfillment. We are waiting in hope that one day, just as Jesus rose, we too will rise. I love what John Stott had to say. 
about this verse of Scripture. If God did not abandon Jesus to death, He will not abandon the Christian dead either. On the contrary, He will raise them as He raised them. The resurrection of Christ is proof. It's two things. It is proof that God can raise the dead and it is a promise that He will raise the dead. It is both proof, historical proof. The resurrection happened. It is real. It is the basis of our faith and the foundation of the church. It is a historical event. It is proof that God, that God, what? Can raise the dead. And it's also a promise that He will raise the dead. Now if we think about this in the context of what Paul is wanting to the to the church to, to be comforted by and how he wants to help them and love them through uh, uh, their grief. I think about this question. How is it that we are to respond differently to death? How is it that, that we do not respond with the despair of this world? And I believe that verse 14 and 15 answers that question for us. Simply, it's because our response is rooted in the gospel story. Our hope in death is rooted in the gospel story. That Jesus came, born of a virgin, born in a manger. We're going to celebrate His coming, the first advent. That He lived on this earth. He lived a righteous life. So in being a righteous life, living that righteous life, He could be the one once and for all sacrifice, perfectly spotless Lamb. And then He died the death that you and I deserve as the, the full penalty of our sin was cast upon Him. God's wrath rained down on Him. He suffered immensely. And He died. He died. And then He defeated death hell and the grave by arising from that through the power that He possesses. He took His own life and then in the power He raised it up. And then He ascended into heaven and He sat down in His rightful place and He began to advocate for each one of us. This is how we know we can have hope. In the middle of death, in the middle of grief, it's because of the gospel story. It is the center of our hope. Paul doesn't just leave this church here. He continues to build upon it. The center of our hope, the foundation of our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul continues to lovingly journey and teach these grieving saints about the depths of God's glory and His love for His own. And he then... He gives us a reason to hope. So we see the significance of our hope. We see the center of our hope. And now we see the reason for our hope. In verse 16, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. We made reference to this. What Paul is about to share here is important. That's what he's saying. This is important. And it is certain. For, for this we declare... By a word from the Lord, it is certain because it's from God. What we're about to hear is sacred, church. 
What we're about to walk through is a beautiful declaration of God meant to encouraging, to encourage you and to comfort you and allow you to practically walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear nothing because God is with you and He will ultimately deliver you from death. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying here is meant to comfort. He is reassuring this church that those believers who have already died will not miss out on this glorious resurrection. They are, their, their soul is, is present with the Lord they have been buried, but one day God will, will rise them up from the grave. He will rise that, and, and their bodies will be glorified. One day, that day is coming. That day is coming. And what we see here is we see something important. He is meaning to encourage them. Listen, they're not going to miss out on the resurrection. They're not going to miss out. They may be with the Lord today, and I believe that that's a comforting truth for all of us even today. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But one day, <laughs> He's going to make all things new. And He's going to reunite. And they're going to experience, those loved ones have gone, they're going to experience the same thing that those who are alive and remain will experience. They're going to experience the resurrection. He continues on, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So what Paul is saying here is says, listen, the dead, those you are grieving for, grieve with hope because they're coming. You have a reason to hope one day they will rise. You have a reason to hope because one day the Lord will ascend. He will descend. One day the Lord will descend. One day we will be resurrected. One day we will be called up together with Him in the clouds. We will meet the Lord in the air. And here's what I want us to see the progression that, that Paul is taking this church through. He gives them the center of the hope. He gives them the reason of the hope. And then he explains the return of Christ. He explains and articulates what that's going to look like. What a beautiful encouragement that we have about Christ's return this morning. Three things that we see in Christ's return here. First, His return will be personal. For the Lord Himself will descend. Paul is intending to convey to us that it is the Lord Himself who will return. He's not sending an ambassador for you. He's not, he's not sending an angel for you. He's not sending a representative for you. It is the Lord Himself who will come for His people. The Lord Himself will come for you. He will resurrect you and then He will come for you. That's good news. And we have hope in death because Christ is coming for His church. And it is personal. But also His return is powerful. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus comes back, 
He will not be coming to fit in with the rest of us. He will not be coming as a babe lying in a manger. He will rather come with a shout, with a cry of a command, with a voice of an archangel. He will come with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is, this is Old Testament language here that we're hearing. And what, what it really represents is that He is coming in all His glory. And when He comes, He is coming not as a babe. He is coming as a conquering king. He is coming as a conquering warrior king. It is a call of command. It is a sound of an archangel. It is the trumpet blowing. He is coming in power. And He is coming to make all things new. Those who have already fallen asleep, Paul says, they're going to they're gonna lead this procession. And then we will all rise to the king. We will all rise and we will join this conquering king, this victorious king in the establishment of his presence and his kingdom forevermore. Not only will his return be personal and powerful, finally his return will be permanent. The last truth that Paul shares is the thrust of all comfort and blessing for the church and our reason to hope. If you don't get anything else (laughs) this morning, get this. When Christ returns, we will always be with Him. His return will be permanent. And this momentary encounter, don't get caught up in this momentary encounter because it is this momentary encounter that will lead to an everlasting fellowship. When we see Jesus face to face, we will enjoy Him and glorify Him forevermore. And we will do that with resurrected and glorified bodies. So Paul says, encourage one another with these words, church. There is despair, there is discouragement, and there is great grief in this world. But we have hope because Jesus has died, has resurrected, has ascended, and will come again for His church. Grieving with hope is meant to happen. And it is meant to happen together. It's meant to happen in community, not isolation. Just as we will one day be caught up together to meet Jesus, so let us encourage one another with the hope that is within us. We have all suffered the loss. We have all felt death. But death through Christ has lost its sting. And we now have hope forevermore. There is a lot to say about this passage. Paul uses some interesting uh, words here that if we took time to go into, we would see even more how he is a conquering king. How the beauty of Christ's death and resurrection has gave us so much hope. And it is doing so much in our lives today and will do forevermore. But in my preparation uh, to preach this passage, I came across a story of a family. Their names are the Geiselman family from Memphis, Tennessee. 
And I came across them because I found this book, and I, it was a children's book, and the book was called The Voyage to the Star Kingdom. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it or, or, or not, but it's a story of the Geismann family, and they, uh, a husband and a wife, a father and a mother of three beautiful young girls, and um, at the age of, I think, three and a half, the two youngest kids were diagnosed with a disease that would not allow them to live past 10 years age. Since the writing of this book, one of the girls has already passed away, and one of them, who used to be completely healthy, cannot has no mobility, cannot even drink for herself. She's in need of constant care, and she will pass away. I want to take some time this morning to read you this children's book. Because I believe it's going to be of great comfort to you. This is not the scripture. We have already preached the scripture, but this book is a children's book and it illustrates the work of Christ in the here and now and the beauty of Christ's coming kingdom and how we get to be a part of it. So if you guys will entertain me, I'm going to read you. This book. Once upon a time in a small house and village upon stone, there lived a very special family. A father, a mother, and three enchanting daughters. Look at her eyes, people said of the oldest daughter. They gleam like the light of the moon. Listen to her laugh, people said of the middle daughter. It bubbles like water from a spring. Watch her go, people said of the youngest daughter. She's as fearless as a lion. One morning, a storm appeared over the house. None of the villagers knew where the storm had come from or why it hovered only over the family's house. But everyone agreed that the family should not weather it alone. Please take our umbrella, said one villager. Let me patch your roof, offered another. The villagers joined hands around the house. We will pray to the star king. He may not quiet the storm but he will always send help. And so the villagers prayed. It stormed for days. The villagers repaired the family's house, but water still crept through the cracks and puddled on the floor. The puddles grew into pools, and the pools became a flood. Didn't the star king hear our prayers, asked the father? Didn't he see the storm, asked the mother? The father and mother trusted the king, but they had never endured a storm like this. Just then, something huge soared through the window. It had wide green leaves and a white flower in its center. It's a water lily, shouted the youngest daughter. A frog poked his head through the petals. I bring you a gift from the star king, he croaked. When the waters rise, he'll always send a boat. The, fi- the family climbed into the water lily. The wind gusted through the house. The family shivered. It's so cold, said the oldest daughter. I wish we had a blanket. A beautiful one with bright colors, added the middle daughter. And big enough for us all, cried the youngest daughter. Suddenly, two gigantic creatures flew through the window and unfurled in front of the fireplace. They were bright green with yellow dots on their backs. Fuzzy yellow antennae sprouted from their heads. They're Luna Moss, shouted the middle daughter. The first moss said, we bring you a gift from the Star King. When you're cold, said the second moth, 
He will always send warmth. The moss fluttered onto the water lily and wrapped their wings around the family. The waters rose and the winds whooshed. One by one, all the candles in the house went out. It's too dark, said the youngest daughter. How can the king light our candles again? At once, a hundred twinkling lights streamed into the house. They wove around the moss wings and slipped between the water lily's petals. They're fireflies, shouted the oldest daughter. One firefly landed on the father's shoulder. We bring you a gift from the star king, he said. When darkness surrounds you, he will always send light. But we only can see each other, the water lily and the moss. Nothing besides the inside of our house, said the mother. The firefly flew to the mother's shoulder. The light only reveals what you need to see. As the storm pounded down on their house, the family nestled deeper into the petals of the water lily. The moss kept their wings wrapped around them, and the fireflies held back the darkness. That night as the family slept, an orange fish with blue-tipped fins sailed through the window. She swam up to the lily. Beloved family, the fish called, waking them, I bring you a message from the star king. It's an angel fish, said the mother, one of the king's assistants. The star king has prepared a banquet for you at the Radiant Palace, said the angel fish, and I will be your guide on the great adventure to the star kingdom. A banquet, said the youngest daughter. I must wear my ruffled dress. A great adventure, said the middle daughter. We must bring a map. The star king, said the oldest daughter. We must take him a gift. The angel fish smiled, says there's no need for dresses. The king will give you a beautiful satin gown. There's no need for a map. The king will draw you to himself. And there's no need for gifts. Your presence will be his greatest treasure. But most people who attend the king's banquet are very old, said the father. Surely our daughters are too young. The angelfish pulled off one of the lily's leaves and placed it in the water. Many people who embark on the great adventure have lived a long time in the village. But there are some who have lived only a little while. These are the ones the star king holds dearest. She fashioned the leaf into a boat. It floated well, but it could not fit the whole family. For now, she said, only the two youngest daughters will depart. The rest of you will follow at a later time. We can't go all together, asked the oldest daughter. The angelfish replied kindly, the star king does not always do the things as we expect. You will be reunited but you must travel separately. Allow me to be their sail, said one of the moths, stretching out his great wings. One of the fireflies whirled excitedly. Place half of us in a jar. We will be their lantern. Thank you, said the angel fish. She plucked a jar out of the water, collected half of the fireflies inside. You will be together again sooner than you think, said the angel fish. The star king is not bound by time. The angel fish leapt out of the water, turned toward the window and flew into the night sky. The water lily boat followed her as a carriage follows a horse. As the boat soared higher, the girls watched their house grow smaller and they could see dozens more of the king's gifts approaching their family. Look at that dragonfly, said the middle daughter. It's carrying a bucket in its mouth. To help your family empty the water from their house, said the angel fish. The youngest daughter gasped, and look at that owl. It's carrying a satchel full of candles. To replace the ones that were lost in the flood, said the angelfish. 
Don't you see? The king will always hold up your family in the midst of the storm. Soon they reached the celestial sea. Stars glittered all around them. Village upon stone was too far away to see, but the star kingdom had yet appeared. What is that? asked the middle daughter, pointing straight ahead. A great shadow lurked in front of the boat. It was so dense that it blotted out many of the stars. The angelfish flew faster, tugging the boat all along behind her. Said the prince of darkness fights the star king at every turn. The shadow is his attempt to separate us from the king. Will it hurt us? asked the youngest daughter. Fear not, said the angelfish. It carries no sting for you. Release your light into the sky and you will see that the prince of darkness has already lost the fight. At that moment, the girls remembered their jar of fireflies. It glowed brightly from the bow of their boat. The middle daughter picked it up. She looked at her sister and said, Ready? The youngest daughter nodded. Together they lifted the jar over their heads and the fireflies scattered in the dark sky, revealing a great host of other angelfish around the boat. They darted through the shadow over and over, creating a new hole each time. When did they get here? asked the youngest daughter. The angelfish, they've been here all along. The king has many warriors fighting for you, whether you see them or not. Warriors, echoed the middle daughter. I thought you were assistants. To assist the king is to fight evil, said the angelfish. They are one and the same. The boat drew closer to the shadow. The angelfish continued to zip through it, back and forth, in and out. Will we fly through it too, asked the youngest daughter. Yes, said the angelfish. The shadow can seem frightening, but you must remember that you are children of the star king. You are strong enough to face the shadow because he has given you strength. Suddenly the girls felt stronger than ever before. The angelfish said, We must call out the king's name as we pass through. It will weaken the shadow even more. As the boat pierced the shadow, the angelfish flipped her tail wildly. I come in the name of the star king. The prince of darkness has no power over me. I come in the name of the star king, shouted each girl. The prince of darkness has no power over me. The shadow groaned and creaked as the boat slipped through, and the girls looked back to see the hole they had created. It was five times bigger than their boat. Excellent work, the angelfish called to them. We have fought well for the king, and we have weakened the prince's shadow. Now look before you. We are approaching the star kingdom. Mountains jutted out from the sea, their tops gleaming with snow. Houses dotted the sides of mountains, set amongst golden trees. And at the bottom of the mountains, in a green valley, set the radiant palace. As girls approached the shore in their water lily boat, a man came out of the radiant palace and walked down the pathway to the sea. Something about him seemed familiar. Look at his robe, said the middle daughter. It's the same white and green as the water lily that held us back home. And his smile, said the youngest daughter, it fills me with warmth like the luna moss wings. But it wasn't until the angelfish docked their boat that the girls noticed his eyes. They burned so fiercely with love that all thoughts of darkness were driven away. Just like the fireflies, the girls said together. Are you the star king? 
asked the youngest daughter, although she felt for sure that he was. The king smiled. I have many names. Elohim, Jehovah, the Alpha and the Omega, the Prince of Peace, the Good Shepherd, and yes, the Star King. Oh, my beloved children, I'm so glad you're here. He opened his arms and they ran to him. The banquet table was set for five guests, he said, holding them close. Now that you are all here, the feast shall begin. Five, said the middle daughter, but there's only two of us. Are there, the king asked. My daughters, look behind you. Three creatures were flying toward the star kingdom. The first was an eagle, and on its back sat the girl's smiling father. The second was a butterfly, which brought the girl's laughing mother. The third was a ladybug ridden by the oldest daughter who waved madly at her sisters. The girls clutched each other's hands. Could their family be here already? Do you remember my words to you as we set off on this great adventure, asked the angelfish. The girls remember. You will be together again sooner than you think. The star king is not bound by time. Many years have passed for your family, said the king, but for you it has only been a moment. Go, kiss your father and mother, and give your sister the hug that she's been dreaming of. The girls ran back to the shore as the eagle, butterfly, and ladybug landed. It was hard to say which of them hugged the other first or who kissed whose cheek the most, but after a while the star king spoke again. I have prepared a house especially for you, he said, nodding toward the mountains. I think you'll recognize it. A small, oddly familiar house set on one of the mountains. It faced the celestial sea and overlooked the radiant palace. It's our house from village upon stones, said the father. And yet it isn't, said the mother. Not quite. The holes in the roof were gone. They hadn't been patched. It was more like they never existed at all. Even from the shore, the family could see smoke curling up from the chimney. There must already be a fire in the hearth, warm and bright. But the best part was the space over the house, which was clear, sunny, and decidedly unstormy. When you're ready, the celebration will begin, said the king. Welcome home. From that moment on, there was no more fear or sadness no more crying or pain. It never stormed. It never got too cold. And the lights never went out. But most importantly, the family was together forever and always. And they lived joyfully ever after because the star king had made all things new. Revelation 20, verse 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray.